Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? Good. All right. Good. But my name is Cody King, and I'm one of the pastors here. And again, I want to say welcome. I'm very, very pleased that you chose to spend some time with us this morning. And uh, I'm excited, and I'm privileged to uh, to be able to start this new series uh, with you guys this morning. So, strengthening your family tree. And over the last several weeks, you've been with us. We've We've talked about this series coming up, um, and, uh, and we're excited about it because we get to, we get to I guess in some ways, um, inject ourselves into your family, um, if, if, if you would allow, uh, that we could give some encouragement, we could give some, in, some, some direction and some challenge on how it is that you can strengthen your family tree. You know, not, and, I, and we don't mean to say just strengthen your immediate family, but strengthen your family tree. Right? Trees have many branches. Right? You have not only children if you're a parent, but you also have siblings, possibly. You have a mom and a dad. I'm certain of it. Right? You, have a, you have grandparents that still may be with you. Right? So a family tree, when we talk about that idea, it's not just about children in a downward and looking downward at the trunk of the tree, but it's up at its branches. And we want to help you guys strengthen that family tree. But before we get into how, I want to talk about why real quick. Why is it? What is the reason? Why would we want to strengthen our family tree? What makes it weak? Oftentimes in our society today, we judge success by um, raising kids and sending them out of the house. But as long as we're sending them out and they're still standing upright and they're breathing and they have 10 fingers and 10 toes um, and they're polite, respectful, you know, they're kind to other people that we've, we've succeeded. Right? We've raised them up and now we're sending them out. But oftentimes it's adherence to some moral standard that we believe to be right. It's oftentimes a moral standard that that we sometimes ourselves will create, but in our day and age, what is deemed moral for me is not necessarily moral for you or someone over here. But as far as politeness goes and just general respect and kindness, every culture on the planet would say those are values to which you should have. No one, no one would disagree with those things. So if you have someone and you're sending out a child that you know, is, is polite and kind and respectful, has a sense of responsibility, yeah, you might be succeeding under that guise, but that's not good enough. When we're talking about the church and spiritual guidance and what we're really sending our children out with is this moral standard, it's an adherence to a moral standard that changes with the culture in which we're sending them to. But when it comes to spiritual guidance, uh, last year Barna did a... Um, did a study where they asked uh, teens where it was that they received uh, spiritual guidance, right? where the most influence was and where some of those came from. They asked several questions, and one of those was, how, um, how are you encouraged to go to church? Who influences you or who encourages you, you to go to church the most? 78% of those said uh, of teens said that their mother encouraged them to go to church the most. Secondly, 69% said their grandparents, and 63% said their fathers. 18% said their siblings, but that's not shocking if you have siblings. But even outside of the family, it was still below 20%. Other family people, other relations, people that are in not necessarily your immediate family, said 37% of family members, not immediate family, encouraged me to go to church. Another question was, who teaches me about the Bible the most? Well, 60% said that their mother teaches them about the Bible. 55% their grandmother, 49% their father. But even lesser still is their siblings. But then greater than outside influences is still their other relations, people that they are kin to, encourage them and teach them about the Bible at a rate of about 27%. But everything underneath that is siblings and those that are friends and then those that are outside their family. But based on these numbers, the largest influencer in a teen's life today, or according to April of last year, was their family. The family is the greatest influencer. And why is that? It's because they're who you're around the most, right? You, you come up, you're raised inside this household. 
You have parents that instill in you the values that they have, that they were passed down to from their grandparents or their parents to them. And they pass that down to you. So families are the largest influencer in our lives. But here, this, these statistics are just based on spiritual guidance. That doesn't necessarily take into account just the other operational procedures of life. Right? How we act, the way we think, the way we handle conflict, the respect that we learn, or the lack thereof for other people. All are shaped mainly by our family. So when we think of the idea of strengthening, strengthening our family tree and why that is necessary, you can look at society today. And I think we would all agree in the downfall, in some ways, of the family unit. I remember when I was a kid, um, it seemed like every night, Monday through Friday, we sat down at the table and we had a meal together as a family. Pretty much Monday through Friday. Saturday was sometimes we would have something. Sunday evening was kind of fend for yourself. But nonetheless, two or three of us would find ourselves around the table having dinner together. I also remember times where me and my younger brother would get so silly. We would be giggling and laughing. And dad would get so tired of it that he would say, you have to go sit on the couch. If you can't quit laughing and eat, you're not going to sit at the table right now. Oddly enough. So we got in trouble. We had to go quit laughing before we could keep eating. But that's a memory I have of, of, of being at the dinner table with my family, and growing in that way, getting to know each other that way. Hey, how was your day? But you don't see that as often in our day and time, and why is that? Because we're so busy. We have so many more things today that pull our time, and we fill our schedules with so many things. The simple things that happen when it comes to our family become less. So it's very important that we begin thinking of ways so we can practically strengthen our family trees, not just our immediate family, but our family tree. And over this month through this series is something, that's something that we want to help you guys begin to do. But the family is the largest influence we have. So now the problem, as I said earlier, the problem is we're gauging success within the family by a subjective moral standard. And we think that it's, it's something that we come up with, but this moral standard that sometimes we send our kids out with or we're raising people up in our family with, is different from the moral standard of our parents, and most certainly different than the moral standard of their parents. There's a generational difference, and you can see the decline in some ways of that moral standard. Watch E! News. Go to YouTube and search a hot-button issue in our country right now, abortion or homosexuality, the transgender movement. The moral standard has changed what we're sending out is not the same as what used to be sent out. And the problem is that we're adhering to this moral standard that we vaguely understand. And when our students and our kids and our teenagers get out into this world and they begin to experience what's happening in the culture around them, if their faith isn't rooted in something, they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes up. And along the way, this idea of moral relativism begins to creep in. They get onto a college campus and instead of hurting someone's feelings, they hear something from a professor or from a friend they just met and it sounds kind of true. They have a larger argument. They can more clearly articulate their way of thinking than I can. They must be right. But then it all, all of a sudden comes into this, well, you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and we'll be good. But again, you can YouTube a hot button topic in our society and it's not that. Though that's the moral standard. But it's confusing. But I believe it's safe to say at this point that the family now has the largest opportunity to influence. But it's taking a back seat to the culture in which we live. Teens and young adults today are more shaped by technology, by money, by pleasure. But it's an unbiblical cultural worldview that they're walking into. And in some ways, it can make more sense to them because they're not being clear on what they're learning. Earlier, you know, the, the family from 60 to 80% would encourage a teen to go to church, but it's 40 to 60% that actually teaches them the Bible. So it's a lesser percentage by a lesser rate are teens in the home being taught the Bible, but they're encouraged to go to church, so they're being outsourced, the teaching. But an hour on a Sunday morning is not enough. 
couple hours on a Wednesday night is not enough. We need to strengthen our family trees. And if we're not careful, what we do is the little bit that they get in church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, they get enough of truth to understand sin, who Jesus is. If I put my faith in Jesus, then I get to go to heaven. I don't, get, I don't have to go to hell. But it's their parents' faith that's not theirs, but they understand based on this moral standard and that little bit they know about Scripture and what's right and wrong. They go out into this world, they puff themselves up with some self-righteousness, and then they start pronouncing judgment and condemnation on the people around them who don't fit within that standard of morality. Would you agree? And again, you can YouTube it. But the problem is, if we're not careful, we're going to send people out with that vague understanding of what Scripture is. They don't understand the gospel and love and truth and grace, but they'll go out, see something that they believe to be wrong, then they'll picket sign outside of an abortion clinic instead of serving at the Hope Pregnancy Center, sharing the gospel with a soon-to-be mother who is scared, lost, and without hope in this world, or little hope. And she is just waiting for someone to step into her life and share the truth of the gospel, and love with her and meet her exactly where she's at. But if we're not careful, we're creating people who believe one thing, and if you're not fitting it, they condemn and they judge. Jesus never once stood outside of a synagogue with a sign in his hand that said, God hates sinners. Jesus went into the synagogue, opened a scroll, read it, handed it back, and said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Your hope and your salvation has come. Jesus went where the sinner was, and he sat down, and he loved them where they were at. And it was the self-righteous Pharisee that stood by with the sign. And if you read through the Gospels, you will see Jesus' response and what he did in those moments. He loved the Pharisee, but he didn't allow them to refute what he was saying. He gave them scripture. He gave them truth. This is the word of God, and this is what it says. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the unrighteous. And Jesus met people exactly where they were at. So I'll get off my soapbox now, but the danger is people become confused. The world around us is confused. They know more about what the church is against than what it is for because we don't know exactly what it is for. It's not for the feel-good on a Sunday morning to feel as if we were justified. Sunday morning is not a day of atonement for our sin. The church is to be changing the world around them. But it's confusing. Sadly, though, many teens and young adults today, they buy into this idea of you believe what you want, I believe what I want will be good. But they're confused on what they should be living out because they haven't learned it within their family. Uh, another Barna study last week, last, week, uh, last year, um, millennial practicing Christians were asked two questions. One was, is, do you believe that part of your faith means that you're a witness for Jesus? 96% of millennial practicing Christians would say that yes, they would agree that my faith means that I am a witness for Jesus Christ. But the second question they're asked, whether they agree or disagree, is 47% of millennial practicing Christians would say that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone in hopes that they would change their beliefs to yours. Do you see the confusion? This is millennial practicing Christian. This is the generation that is stepping out into the world right now or has stepped out into the world right now and they're so confused that they would say that 96% of them would say, yes, I agree that I am a witness. My faith means I am a witness for Jesus Christ. But half of them, nearly half of them disagree that they should share that faith with someone. That's a misrepresentation of the gospel. That's just not understanding what you claim to believe, that's not understanding the God that you put your faith in. That's the confusing times that we are now in. So, where does that come from? It comes from a simple adherence to a cultural view of what is moral instead of biblical truth. So, what do we do? What do we do with this problem? If we want to strengthen our family tree, what is it that we do? 
And for me, the answer is simple. If you're a child of God and you have his spirit living within you, if you get to a point in your life where I just don't know what to do, well, what you do is, one, you pray, and then you go to his word. You pray and you ask the God that created everything, that give you every bit of instruction, everything you need that pertains to life and godliness is in his word. So you pray and you ask God for insight and for wisdom and discernment, and then you go to his word for that instruction. And I promise you, he will, he will give you that instruction. But Cody, I, I read all the time, but I just, I just don't get it. Well, read it again. Well, I read it again. I don't, I don't get it. Read it again. How did you learn to do the job that you do that you get paid 40 hours a week to do? If you're an accountant, how did you learn to, to account? You read a book. You studied. You went to school. You had someone teach you these things, but it wasn't until you got out into the world, in your career, in the field, and you started doing that did the truth of everything you just read start coming out. Every trade that is out there, be it a plumber, electrician, a welder, you had to study. If you're a master at anything, you studied and did things, but what made you a master at it is the time you put in doing it. And when you, when, when you began to do what you read, the truth of what you read came to life. And it's no different with Scripture. But the difference with Scripture is, is that you have the author of that living inside of you, and all he wants to do is give you understanding of what he's written. But you have to read it. You have to read it, appropriate it, put it in. We'll get more on that here in a second. And when you get out there and you actually start putting that into practice, the truth of it comes alive. But sometimes we get discouraged because we read it in a moment. I don't understand what that says. I must be an idiot. No. You just have to read it again. Read it again. And you appropriate it. Put that in. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, when you do that and you get into a situation where you need it, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that hovered over the waters at creation, that lives inside of you, will give you insight and wisdom when you need it. I find that true in my own life. But it comes with prayer and God's word. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read God's word. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for... I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for what we're about to read. And, um, and I pray, Lord, that Lord, the truth of it that comes alive for us. Lord, that, that, we're, that we bring, you bring to our remembrance what you've done, who you are, and the truth of what we are to go and proclaim and how to do that, firstly, within our families. I pray that you just go before us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, church. We're about to read a whole lot of scripture together. I'm pretty excited about it, but it's going to be a lot of scripture. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5. So when it comes to the family and what you do, if you've been in church before and you've grown up in church, this shouldn't be a tricky passage for you. You may know. There are others here you probably have no clue, but you know what? We're about to lay this out. So, so here we go. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, through nine, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall walk, I mean, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So here he's saying, the word that I'm giving you today, the command I'm giving you today shall be first and foremost, it shall be on your heart. And then you shall teach them diligently to your children. Diligently. That means over and over. You keep at it. You don't just read it once. You don't just tell them about it once. You stay at it and you diligently teach them to your children. But finish this sentence for me, if you will. You cannot teach what you do not you cannot teach what you do not. You cannot give what you do not have. He says, let these be on your heart. And then you teach them diligently to your children. You pass that, pass that word on. And then his word should be completely encompassing your life. When you lie down and when you rise, when you walk by the way, on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates, everywhere, on your person, the word of God should be with you. It should be on your heart, completely encompassing your life. 
Well, what does that mean, Cody? Do I just do I just carry my Bible and just read it all day long everywhere? If you're so convicted, but no. You allow that word, you appropriate it, you write it on the tablet of your heart, you read it, you have a desire for it, an earnest for it. So you read, and you don't just read it and then stop. You read it, read it again, you study it some more, you learn from it, pray, ask the Spirit to give you insight. It takes work. It's not just a read, it hits me, I got it, and move on. If that were the case, every Christian in here would be rocking it because you would read from Genesis to Revelation, you would remember everything, we would have very bland conversations because we all know it. Probably wouldn't even be here today. We'd be out sharing the gospel somewhere. But that's not the case. We're all conformed to the same image from one degree of glory to the other. We all learn differently, but it takes reading, writing that on the tablet of your heart, and then you teach it diligently to your children. But then in verse 17 through 18, he says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord. So it's not enough to write them on the tablet of your heart. And then you teach them to your children, you also have to keep the commandment. So diligently keep it. Again, diligently means that you're going to have to continue to do this. It's not a one day I kept the command today and then tomorrow I'm not really going to keep it. You diligently stay after it and you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Right and good in the sight of the Lord. He didn't say right and good in the sight of the culture in which you live. No, it's right and good in the sight of the Lord. And if you know the history of the nation of Israel, they get to a point where they stop doing what's right and good in the sight of the Lord, and they start doing what's right and good in the sight of the countries in which they dwell because they didn't drive out the people as God told them to do. So in essence, they didn't keep his command. They did what the people around them did. And well, if you know Israel's history, what happened time and time and time and time again with them. We'll continue on. We'll get to that more here in a second. But he says... Do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. We could say that in our day and time, we live in a pleasure-seeking day and time. But I promise you, the first century church lived in a pleasure-seeking day and time. When this was written, it was a pleasure-seeking day and time. Sin is still sin. It doesn't matter what generation it's in. Our heart is desperately sick. No one can understand it. It wants and desires, and it seeks after that thing that it wants and desires. But most often, if without the presence of God in our lives, it's going to seek after something that is not according to God's will. But he does all this. He gives all this. God is not a cosmic killjoy. The entire law that he is about to lay out for the nation of Israel after saying this is all for their good, that it may go well with them. He's not trying to rob them of every bit of joy that's going to happen in their life. He's just trying to put guidelines. I'm trying to protect you. And even today in the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, it's all for us. It's our protection. God doesn't want to put us in a bubble so nothing really harms us, but he wants us to know what to do when we get in a world that wants to destroy us. He wants your children to know it so when they get out into this world that they're prepared to take the onslaught of the enemy that wants to destroy them, that wants to make them depressed, wants to confuse them so their identity is something, anything other than him, then they're confused and then they're scared and their breakdown of everything happens around them. But God, it's for your own good that you would diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, that it may go well with you. And we can read Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, we can read Deuteronomy and see the entirety of the law and the exhaustiveness of it. We have to do all that? No, we don't. Israel did. But the point of all that was just to point them to their failure and their need for a Savior. And the same is true for us today. But what does Jesus say in the New Testament? When the Pharisees asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Look back at verse 5 of chapter 6. He begins, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then what he commands is the law. But Jesus, when he comes, he fulfills the law. And he says that one, you should love the Lord your God. And two, you should love your neighbor as yourself. He says, All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this command. So church, what do we have to do? What is our command? It's to love God and to love people. 
to not adhere to a moral standard that we scarcely understand and changes from generation to generation. But it's love God and love people. And you're going to fulfill that. But then he goes on in verse, uh, verses, go to 20, uh, read, we'll read 20 through 25. Now you're going to come to a point when you're teaching this and you're learning this and diligently teach it to your children. One day you're going to be teaching this and your son's going to come to you and he's going to ask this, right? When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Dad, there's just so much stuff going on here and... I don't, I don't get it, Dad. It's a lot. It's wearing me out. It's wearing me out. I don't know what to do. I'm very confused. I don't understand all of it. What do we do? Here's your response. At least what he told the Israelite fathers to tell their sons. He says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. He's like, son, I saw this. Son, this happened to me. Son, I did this. But it's simply, the answer isn't explain the theological concepts of predestination. It's not what what we're told to do, but it's told to remind them of what God has done. But if God has done something in your life, remember it, write that down. So one day when your son says, why do I need to believe in God? Well, son, here's the reason. Here's what God did in my life, and I saw it. And that's what they tell him his sons it was before our eyes and then verse 23 and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us land that he swore to our fathers and the lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the lord our god for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and it will be right righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the lord our god as he has commanded us so his fathers here tell them remind them of what i've done and then remind them that they're to keep this commandment. This is what you do. This is how you respond. This is how you teach your children. So you tell your children about the goodness and salvation of the Lord and the promises therein. That is your response to your kids. That is the basic understanding that you need to have. And then you grow from that. But now I want you to turn to Psalm 78. We're going to read verses 1 through 18a. But uh, King David writes this, and he's writing about what we just read and what happened with this generation. So Moses writes Deuteronomy, and he writes this, Tell the people this, love the Lord your God, keep his commandments this day, teach them diligently to your children. When your son asks you later on about these things, this is what you were to say to him. So Moses is writing, telling that generation what to do. Now David is going to give us a recap of that generation and what they did. So David says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So David, you see the theme. It's no different with King David. We heard this from our fathers. We're going to tell this to our children so that the generations may come, may know that the Lord is good. And then verse 5, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. You see, He's just driving that point home. And then um, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. So the reason we continue to tell our children, the reason the nation of Israel was to tell their children, was so that they should set their hope in God, not in the world around them, but their hope would be in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not Faithful to God. Now all of a sudden, a shift happens. Something happened at some point that didn't fit what's being directed. He's saying to the people here, you got to remember what they were supposed to do. This is what they were told to do. But yet, don't be like those fathers. But there was a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not do what God said. And coincidentally enough, it was the very first generation that was told that. 
This is what we need to realize, church, that a change has to happen. It has to happen now in the moment. The very first generation that was told to love the Lord your God was given His commandment, told to diligently teach that to their children. The very first generation to get that directive failed it. They rebelled against God. They were stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then David's going to continue here. The Ephraimites armed with a bow. This is what they ended up doing. Ephraimites armed with a bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders in the fields of Zone. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with the cloud and all the night with fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them a drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out from the rock and caused the waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their hearts. And David goes on in Psalm 78. I go on, encourage you to read it. And he explains what ends up happening. Despite God's faithfulness to them, to this generation of people, just earnestly trying to get them to see and to trust him, providing for them over and over. I'm so hungry, here's manna. Now I'm so thirsty, here's water. I'm tired of manna, here's meat. But they continued to rebel against God to a point where an entire generation was not allowed to enter in the promised land. Forty years they wandered in the desert for a generation to die before its descendants could be allowed in. That is how quickly... If we're not careful and if we're not teaching what we should be teaching our children, how quickly a generation will disintegrate and a country will fall. But it's quite profound if you read through the nation of Israel, read their history. It's quite profound, just the unending, undying love of God for his people. Us included. So let me show you what I mean by us included. And this is, this is where I love Scripture, church. This is where I love Scripture. Fast forward a thousand years. This is, this is where it gets good. Fast forward a thousand years. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to read. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the seed. The same language, the same reminding, bringing to remembrance the same things. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do not be unaware, church. Remember what happened. And then verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. There's the warning. There's the, there's the entirety of Scripture, 1,500 years worth of Scripture writing and history of the nation of Israel. And here Apostle Paul tells the church, don't be unaware, they screwed up, but this happened as an example for us. Everything that you read about the nation of Israel and everything that they went through happened as an example for you and me. Praise the Lord for such an example. But we got to read it. That's the instruction that's given. And then he continues on what they did. Again, just like David, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That statement could cover a lot of what we're doing now today. Sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. How rampant is sexual immorality in our culture and on our TV? Guard your children's eyes against a commercial. Think about it. But we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Praise the Lord, we're under grace. And not 23,000 people are falling in a single day because they're sexually immoral. We must not put Christ to the test in verse 9 as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. 
And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. When we send out a morally upright person into this world, we think we have succeeded. When you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. Be careful. When you're prideful and you think you've got this thing figured out and I'm raising them up great, they're polite, they're kind, they're respectful. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. They have some responsibility. They know Jesus. I've succeeded. Be careful lest you fall. But it all took place in example for us and written down for our instruction. So the question is, what instruction are you instructing with? What are you giving to your family? Now, there's three approaches to parenting, real quick, that I want to run through. One is hands-off parenting. Hands-off parenting. Right? It's adhering to cultural norms and keeping everyone as happy as possible. That's the idea. We'll just, we'll just keep them alive and then let them, let them go, and we'll be good. Leave them alone, and we're just going to hope for the best. Hands-off parenting. Number two is trial and error parenting. Kids didn't come with an instruction manual. So, you know, parents are just amateurs, right? And it's just figured out as you go. We're going to try this. We're going to experiment here. And then based on the results that we see and the outcomes there, we're going to make adjustments based on some failures and some successes with our kids. This is probably the most common style of parenting or approach to parenting is we ain't got this figured out. If you have five kids... I would hope by the fifth, you kind of got it figured out. But from what I understand, it's still a little up in the air. Right? But trial and error parenting. But the goal is simply to improve as you go. And then the third is intentional parenting. You have a goal in mind for your kids. You want your kids' lives one day to be defined by something. So you're an intentional parent. Now, understand that not everyone in here is a parent. Not everyone online or not everyone in Edgewood is a parent and has children to which they would walk through one of these approaches. We may have some single people that are far from having kids. We may have some people that just you cannot have kids. So let's change the way we're looking at this when it comes to our family tree. As I started out and I said at the beginning, it's not just downward with kids, but you have siblings, you have parents, Possibly some grandparents that are still alive. You have some cousins over there. But you have family around you. Your tree has branches. So let's change the word. Let's not call it parenting. Let's call it discipling. And when you start thinking about that word, it should completely change your mindset on the subject matter of what we're instructing when it comes to discipling. But what is discipling? What are you talking about? What what exactly is that? Well, a disciple is a student or follower of a teacher, essentially. A discipler, or someone that is discipling someone, is teaching them what they know, specifically around doctrine. That's the idea. But it's a teacher discipling a disciple. right? So let's look back at these three approaches. Let's look at hands-off discipling. Will that work? No, I mean, teachers teach. I mean, if you're a teacher, you're, you're hands-on. If you really want to communicate... What you know to a student, you're in it, right? You can't be hands-off and teach someone. So number one, won't work. The second one is trial and error discipling. Will that work? That might get you a little bit of results, you know, but, but nonetheless, a teacher knows what, it's, what he's teaching. They know the subject matter that they're giving. You might trial and error some, the manner in which you teach from time to time, but if you have God's Word as your instruction manual based on what it's taught you, there's not going to be a lot of, not much trial and error. You're going to figure it out sooner than later. But the third way is intentional discipling. You have a plan. You know, you, 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 you know where you want this disciple. And it's probably going to get you results. But still, it's not enough to be intentional. Well, Cody, how are you going to get up here and tell me three approaches and not one of them is, is, is good enough? Several years ago, Andy Stanley came up with this, what he called the principle of the past. Some of you may know it. And it's brilliant. 
It was brilliant. But he says that destination, not intention, determines your destination. Direction, sorry, direction, not intention, determines your destination. But it's direction. It's the direction you choose to go. There's not a parent in here that intends for their child to become a drug addict. You don't intend for your child one day to end up in prison. You don't intend for your child to be sad and depressed one day and require medication. It's not your intention for your child. But nonetheless, that happens. There are many people who are addicted to drugs. In our community, arms reach, rolling oaks. There are many people around us that are addicted to drugs or are depressed or are in prison, but you didn't intend for them to be there. So how did they get there? The path that they chose led them to that. So it's direction, not intention, that determines your destination. So it's not enough to be intentional. You have to have a plan for how you're going to get to where you're going. And when it comes to strengthening your family tree, it's not enough to intend to do that. You have to have a plan of how you're going to get there. And over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through a lot of that with you guys. But it begins with the teaching and a teacher. It begins with instruction and an instructor. The Apostle Paul said this way. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Simply enough. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he wrote half, over half of our New Testament. And here he simply says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ Jesus says it this way, and he removes all the confusion that we saw earlier when it comes to the generation that has gone out. He removes all the confusion. Acts 1.8, he says this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says, You will be my witnesses. Something that 96% of practicing Christian millennials would agree with. Yes, I'm your witness. But Jesus removes the confusion in Matthew 28, 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He doesn't just say, you're my witnesses. Stop there. It says, you are my witnesses. Now you go and make disciples of all nations. And then you teach them everything that I have commanded. You see the theme from Deuteronomy all the way through Scripture. It does not change. You share what you have. You give that instruction. You teach them what I have commanded you. Now he says, go, there and go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But before you go to all nations, where is the place that you have the most influence? Your family. Your family tree. The people that are closest to you. And I personally feel that it is, I don't know if I want to say shameful, but I don't have a real good word for it, but just I feel that it's wrong in a way, to go out into the world and disciple the nations when in your own family you have people that are far from God. The people that you would say you care and you love the most, why would you not disciple them in the same way that you would go disciple the nations and teach them diligently all that God commands? And what does he command? Love God and love people. And then get into the word. The instruction is there. And it's written down for us. So Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So I would say to you, imitate Christ and call your family to that. And I'm not saying that all you should do is say, son, daughter, imitate me as I imitate Christ. No, I'm saying that you should be saying, sister, Sister, I see your brokenness. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Nothing, nothing is beyond repair. Imitate me, sister. Mom, Dad, I see your struggle. I see your bickering. I see your fighting. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's peace, I promise. Grandma, Papa, 
Your tradition constrains you. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Brother, your sin binds you. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's freedom. Brother, I swear. But imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if you do that, if you start doing that in your family, you start imitating Christ and calling your family to that, you will begin strengthening your family tree. It will happen. The answer to all the questions ends and begins with Jesus Christ. And if you don't know about Jesus Christ, ask someone within the church. I encourage you to start with the Gospel of John and start reading about who Christ is and then begin imitating that. And I promise you, everything else will begin to come. But you can start here, strengthening your family tree. Now, earlier I said it's, you need to have a comprehensive plan right, to get where you're going. As a church, we want to help you do that. You know, over the next several weeks, as we walk through this um, month of November in this series, we're going to provide for you, or we've created for you, a guide to help you walk through what it looks like to strengthen your family. There are some daily challenges throughout this guide that you can do as a family that will begin to strengthen your bonds together, will help have conversations that point to Jesus and the reason for trying seeking to strengthen your family. Today, you know, if you, I guess none of you, this is first you've heard of it, you don't have one of these yet, but... <laughs> Today, November 3rd, is the first challenge. And um, the first challenge is to grab a box that you probably saw when you came in. Uh, and some of you, I know, have already grabbed one. Good job. Proactive. What is this? Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> but the box is for, it's called Operation Christmas Child. It's through Samaritan's Purse. And, um, and it's simply, you grab that box and you put gifts in this box and then it is sent to a child who would otherwise not receive a gift for Christmas this year. But we have a very quick video just to introduce that. So if y'all would check that out and then we'll wrap up. When you pack shoebox gifts with Operation Christmas Child, you're sending joy and blessing children all over the world. Through your simple act of kindness, children experience the love of Jesus are discipled through the local church and are empowered to reach their families and communities with the good news of Jesus Christ. To send joy to children all over the world, visit SamaritansPurse.org OCC. So you can go to SamaritansPurse.org OCC and it will give you information and instructions on what to do. Um, uh, if you download your guide um, at StonePointChurch.com slash FamilyTree, there will also be instructions on what to do. And then other than that, there is also, if you grab a box, a pamphlet inside that box that will give you instruction on what to do. So you're without excuse on your instruction for the day. So take that instruction, appropriate it, and then teach that. But it's a fantastic way for you guys as a family to serve the needs of someone else around you. For a child that would otherwise not get a gift on Christmas, what a wonderful way to get something and along with your children and your family, buy gifts, put them in this box. Talk about why you're doing it, the reason for the season, and begin instructing your children on what it looks like to serve rather than be served, to give rather than to receive. Wonderful way to begin that this season. But to end here and wrap up, I can't reiterate enough. I think I would speak for the staff and the leadership of our church is we can't reiterate enough that we need to be imitating Christ and calling other people to do that. Imitate me. You, church, can imitate me only as I imitate Christ. Don't do what I do because I'm on stage and I'm saying do it. Do what I do because Jesus is leading me. Trust that Jesus is leading the one next to you. But allow Jesus to lead you and then call others to that so that you begin strengthening your family tree. I'm excited for the weeks to come, church. Thank you for being here. Lord, thank you for today. 
Um, Lord, I thank you for your word. As always, Lord, I say that all the time. Lord, but it's your word that brings truth, that brings understanding and enlightenment to the darkness that's around us and the confusion that we're in and just the day and age where morality itself is just defined and redefined by a society that is just declining. Lord, I ask that the church would rise up to, an, to the challenge, to an occasion, to be awakened, to speak into that darkness and bring clarity and understanding to the confusion that surrounds us, Lord. Lord, I believe that the way we do that is we start in our homes, Lord. We start sending out spiritual champions. We start sending out people from our families that know you and understand you and have a desire for someone else next to them to know you and understand you. Lord, that it would be disciples making disciples on top of more disciples. It is exponential if we would just but do it, Lord. Lord, you change the entire world with 12 broken men. This room is full of over a hundred broken people that you have made whole. I pray that you move in our hearts to go out and seek out others that are broken and give the same hope and encouragement. And I pray that as we look and we find them in our own family tree, Lord, that you would move us to call to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Lord, we would begin to see a healing take place and an awakening in our country, Lord, that desperately needs you. But it starts with our family, Lord. And I just pray that you move us to that. We love you and we thank you. And I just pray, Lord, for these next few songs and these next few moments of worship, Lord, that we just enter into that, Lord, and praise you for your wonderful name and who you are. It's your name I pray, amen.